I want to talk a little bit about the reason we get to celebrate Labor Day. And that's the labor movement that helped build this country and our middle class. For generations, every time the economy has changed, hardworking Americans marched and organized and joined unions to demand not simply a bigger paycheck for themselves, but better conditions and more security for the folks working next to them, too. Their efforts are why we can enjoy things like the 40-hour work week, overtime pay, and a minimum wage. Their efforts are why we can depend on health insurance, Social Security, Medicare, and retirement plans. All of that progress is stamped with the union label. All of that progress was fueled with a simple belief that our economy works better when it works for everybody. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That was President Obama sharing reflections on Labor Day in his weekly presidential address back on September 3rd, 2016. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, September 6th, and let's start with some reflections on unionizing as we come out of our own Labor Day weekend. According to the National Labor Relations Board, the first half of the fiscal year saw an incredible increase in the number of union representation petitions that were filed. It's an increase of 57%, up to over 1,100 petitions from compared to the 748 during the first half of 2022. We've seen major successes from unions, right? Apple, Amazon, Starbucks have all had their first successful unionizing moments over the last few months. And a Gallup poll just the last week found that 68% of Americans approved of labor unions. That's the highest level of support since 1965. Now, a lot of this has been driven by the pandemic and by rising inequality. You see workers rising up, whether through formal unionizing efforts or through political battles. You see the impact of the pandemic that helps employees realize their power as the labor shortage forces companies to figure out how do they treat workers better, and particularly in a moment with some of the most extreme economic inequality we have seen in a long time seen accelerations in the fight for 15. Many companies now just offering $15 minimum wage or higher as a base because that's what they need to do to get anyone to take the jobs that they're posting. You've seen the success of the Restaurant Opportunities Coalition as they're running bills to both raise the minimum wage and eliminate the tipped wage. You're seeing these successful unionizing efforts. But the real question long term and the question for our democracy is how will this play out? Union membership remains low, and right-to-work laws remain a headwind and a barrier for unionization in so many states. So we're definitely seeing this resurgent belief in unionization and a resurgent push for economic justice. How that plays out in November for our elections and how it ties to the conversations around inflation, how it ties to the conversations around the economic populism that Biden is trying to embrace, a different version than Trump's how it resonates and plays into the kind of future of our democracy is something to definitely keep an eye out. But as we come out of Labor Day this week, we see definite signs of kind of a resurgent labor movement. Also, more notes on the shifting momentum of you know, the current political moment. I talked about it last week, and we've been talking about it for a few weeks. Of This has been a summer bump for Biden and for Democrats overall. Of course, the big news since last week's podcast was Mary Portola winning the Alaska special election on Wednesday. She will be the first Alaskan native to serve in Congress and the first woman 
to hold the House seat from Alaska. She's also the first Democrat to win statewide office since 2008. And she bested, of course, ex-Governor Sarah Palin to finish out this term for Don Young, who died in March. She'll also be on the ballot again in November for a full term. And she won in Alaska. It was the first time they'd had their new ranked choice voting process. And she edged out Palin because just enough people who picked Republican Nick Bedgett as their first choice picked Peltola as their second. So 40% of Alaskans had ranked Peltola as their first choice. 60% of Alaskans voted for one of the two Republican nominees. But because of ranked choice voting, they could choose her as their second, and she ended up just over because she got at least just over 10% of Republican first-ranked votes went to her as their second rank. You know, this is the fifth special election since Roe v. Wade. Pat Ryan had a surprise win for Democrats in New York's 19th district, which was another that was looked at as another bellwether. And the other three special elections, Democrats lost. But what's notable in all three of those is that they lost by smaller margins than Joe Biden did in 2020. So it's a question of like, is the party able to turn out its base after Roe v. Wade? Is the party able to turn out its base in all of the ways that we're seeing politics shift right now. But that row wave is the biggest one. The other piece to note coming out this week is a new big piece of analysis that Tom Bonier, CEO of Target Smart, a data and polling firm, wrote about in what's being widely circulated New York Times op-ed on Saturday, where he's talking about a row wave of new women voters. He said, quote, in my 28 years analyzing elections, I've never seen anything like what's happened in the past two months in American politics. Women are registering to vote in numbers I've never witnessed. Now, you're seeing this pattern mostly in places where abortion is on the ballot or where the electoral stakes tied to abortion are the highest. Biggest surge, no question, in Kansas and in Idaho. Um, but you're also seeing big surges in key battleground states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, where statewide races in November could impact abortion access. And it's really making this question of, are we seeing a shift? Are, will the Dobbs decision and the overturn of Roe v. Wade actually shift the dynamics of our politics so dramatic that it may put the Senate back in play or even put the House back in play? The Senate is now being seen as a toss-up of who retains control. It was leaning Republican in almost every projection um, a few months back, and the House is getting closer. You know, the new Wall Street Journal survey found that 83% of Democrats said they're likelier to vote in November because of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Only 31% of Republicans said the same thing. And actually 60% of voters says that abortion should be legal most or all of the time, which is up from 55% back in March. And only 6% of the population want a complete ban without exceptions. So these shifts are big. And for the Senate, it's now fully back into a toss-up. We'll see who retains control. I will say on the House side, it's still with many, many caveats. The House is getting closer. The question of who retains control is a big one. And whether some of the big lie proponents who won their Republican primaries win. And do you have more of a extreme Republican House caucus? A second question beyond just control. And this is really because of a number of factors. You've got a historic number of Democratic retirements. 
You've also got redistricting. You know, GOP added very deep red seats in Nashville, Atlanta, Houston, eastern Montana, Florida, where just those seats alone could put them in position to take the five plus seat margin that they need to take back control. You also see roughly a dozen Democratic members who are defending Trump one seat. So districts that Trump won, they're now trying to defend. So this combination of retirements, redistricting, defending in Trump-leaning territory, all mean that even with the row wave, even with shifting momentum, may not be enough for Democrats to retain control of the House. But you know, six months ago, the question was, how big would they lose? The question now is, is there any way that they win? Or how close will it be? Very different. And how close the margin is really has an impact on our democracy because it means a few moderates crossing the lines can pass or block different key measures that might move through the U.S. Congress and impact the future of our democracy. Last thing to mention today, of course, is that over in Massachusetts, they are having their primary elections, one of our final primaries happening now. And Massachusetts, an interesting state, and the primary dynamics are very interesting. Maura Healy is unopposed as the Democratic nominee for governor, meaning that you know she is guaranteed to win and all but likely to be the next governor of Massachusetts, flipping that governorship from a longtime moderate Republican back into the Democratic column. But everything below the governor's race is very unsettled. You see the race to be lieutenant governor, the race for attorney general, the race for state auditor are all entering on the Democratic side, primaries that are too close to call. You've seen really contentious races also on the Republican side in the primary. So while nationally, there's not as close an eye on Massachusetts because there's not a Senate race, there's not likely big switches in U.S. congressional seats, and the governorship is all but likely to switch parties in Massachusetts and in this question of where does the liberal versus progressive sides of the party stand in one of the most progressive states in the country, often seen as a bellwether for the Democratic Party, what happens in Massachusetts today will be very closely analyzed. Similarly for Republicans, while there's not a lot of opportunity for Republicans to win in some of the statewide races, who wins in the primaries, another indication of how are big lie proponents doing outside of bright red election areas. So things to look at in Massachusetts, indications of the future of our democracy. And of course, it also matters deeply to everyone who lives in Massachusetts. And that's ultimately the purpose of our democracy and our elections is to really look at what will happen to the people who live in each place. So worth paying attention to. But that's what I've got for this week's review of developments in American democracy. I hope you all had a great Labor Day weekend, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.